Exodus chapter 25. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into our study. Um, yeah. All right, let's pray. Lord, as we, I just, Lord, I just want to quiet myself before you. In my mind, in my heart, Lord, um, before your people, as I stand before you and, and before them, God, I, I confess that um, I'm so in need of you. Lord, we don't want to hear, I don't want anyone to hear from me. Lord, we need to hear from you. Lord, when we think about a revelation, a word, God, we want it to come from you. Lord, I was raised my whole life, as you know, in, in, in a church where, where it was all about what man said. And, and God, I was desiring, starving, not even knowing it, um, starving to death, Lord, just to know you and to know your word and to hear you speak to me and give me um, your will and your plan for my life. And I pray, God, that that would take place this morning, that you would use me as, as your servant, as your vessel, Lord, to um, communicate the truths in your word, Lord, that we would read it and understand it, that you would discern it to us by your Holy Spirit, and God, that you would reach into each one of our lives where we're at, and Lord, we're all in different places, and we, we're comforted by knowing that you know where we're at what we're going through, what we need. Um, both those, those times, Lord, where we are, are rejoicing and those times when we're, we're sorrowful and grieving, Lord, you know what we need in, in each one of those seasons. And I pray, God, for each people, person here that no matter what season of life they find themselves in, Lord, that um, the message this morning would relate to their lives and that they would go from here, Lord, strengthened, encouraged, and um, knowing you more. And Lord, I pray ultimately that as we come together, setting aside the cares of this world, um, the distractions and, and, and the burdens, um, Lord, that our time before you as we quiet our hearts and minds to hear from you would be our time together, would be an act of worship, Lord, as we were even talking about in the last couple of weeks, as we patiently wait upon you, worshipfully waiting on you. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to pick back up in verse 10. Um, that's where we're at through our study. And in the remaining verses of this chapter, we'll read about, um, we'll continue reading about the building plans that God gave to Moses while on Mount Sinai. And specifically, plans regarding four pieces of furniture, four very special and significant pieces of furniture that were to be placed in the tabernacle. I don't know if you guys have ever done a study on your own through the tabernacle or through the temple, but it's a really cool thing, and I would encourage you to do that because there's a lot of um, a spiritual representation, lots of illustrations that, that apply to our lives today and, of course, point forward to Jesus Christ our Savior, but also gives us really cool glimpses into what God's doing here on this earth, the tabernacle and the temple does, and, and all that's, that was in them and all that was done um, while they still stood. And um, not only gives us a, a picture of what God's doing here, but it gives us a picture in, into God's throne room. And we're going to talk about that, but as we continue on, we need to keep in mind that, that by giving Moses these instructions for the construction of the tabernacle... And, and by establishing the Levitical priesthood, this is what we want to keep in mind. This is the lens that we, we ultimately look through 
the rest of what we're going to talk about together through the rest of this book. But we ultimately want to keep in mind that God was fulfilling his promise to be the children of Israel's God. He's fulfilling a promise through the construction of the temple, by the instructions and the plans laid forth for how to build it and what to do in it and what to put in it. And then, of course, the Levitical priesthood all the way up to the high priest who first was, was Aaron and, his, and then his sons who, who served with him and the anointing of that, which we'll read about. All of these things were because God was going to be children of Israel's God. And, 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 um, and what we'll see in this, it, it, it wasn't God in, in the sense that the world looks at it. You and I have a different perspective on God than the world looks at, but God sees God, our God, and, he, and he, they look at him from a distance as a, a God who's not touchable, a God who's not relatable, a God who doesn't want really to have anything to do with them. And, and, and that's not true. We know that to not be true about our God, that our God is very personal. He's, he, he wants to have a relationship. He wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives intimately and personally as he walks beside us as a, as a friend, as a father, as a Lord, as a savior, as a provider, as a protector, as a comforter, as a healer, and all these things that God makes himself known to us. And this was the same for the children of Israel. Because God says, I'm going to be your God. And that's what he was saying. This is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be Yahweh. I'm going to be Jehovah. I'm going to be Adonai. All these wonderful things that God had, had promised. And he said, this is the way that I'm going to do it. And this is the, the vessels or the vehicles by which it would take place through the tabernacle and the Levitical priesthood. And, and, and you and I, we have so much better, right? Because we have Jesus Christ as our high priest. Furthermore, and, and, and this is one of the things I didn't understand being raised in the Catholic Church. Furthermore, I have no need of a mediator other than Jesus Christ. I have no need for an earthly mediator because I can come freely and boldly and confidently into the presence of God now because of the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross for me. I don't have to go to any man to confess my sins. I don't have to go to any man you know, in order to be, to be blessed. Um, I go right to God. I go right to him, and we go right to him. And, and, and in addition to that, we have no longer a need for the tabernacle, a, a, a place where we need to, to go to find God's presence, to be in the midst of God's power and authority. And, 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 and we, he's everywhere. He lives in us, and wherever we go, he's there with us. You know, and you begin to think about the significance of that. The children of Israel, they lived all over the country. And some lived even outside of the country. And they were commanded in these annual feasts to come back to the temple, to the tabernacle, where they could worship God and offer up their sacrifices and their praise to God and, and find, find the, the atonement or for the forgiveness of their sins. They had to journey great distances on the back of donkeys and by foot and all these things to go to be there with God, to worship Him, to serve Him. And, and you and I don't have to do that. God's made Himself completely accessible to us so easily, so awesomely so conveniently, where we can wake up in the morning and, and, and he's there. Wherever we go, there he is with us. And so these awesome pictures forward to what, as we look at the tabernacle and the temple and the things that were in them, the Levitical priesthood, as God wanted to be there, God, we look at the, 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 the blessings that we now have as God says, I'm going to be your God too. Now it's better. And in the first nine verses of this chapter, when we're told that God first spoke to Moses... Looking back to what we've already gone through, while he was on the mountain, remember this all took place over a period of 40 days and, and 40 nights, we're told. We see that God, when he spoke to Moses, he, 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 he first told 
him to tell the people. Actually, it was an invitation, right? It was an invitation. He told them to go and invite the people to freely give all of the materials that were needed for the construction of the temple. God was inviting them into this, and for not only for the, 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 the tabernacle, but also for the vestments of the priests. And it says that it was to be done, an invitation to, to make an offering to him, an offering to God. And all the gold, all the silver, all of the, the, the dyes and the threads and the, and the, and the skins and the, and, the, and the jewels, the onyx stones, all of it, all these precious things were to be given as an offering freely to God. And, and, and all through this process, and think about this in, in, in how it relates to us. Think about this in relationship to God just going, I just want to be your God. Because, because as God was doing this, as God was inviting them to make this offering in the first nine verses for the materials that were needed for the construction of the tabernacle and the vestments of the priests, all through this process, and even if we go back even before then when God first was, was, came to, him and call, to Moses and called the people together around the mountain, you know, at the very beginning of the consecration of this covenant that God was calling them to enter into, we see the same thing. But through this whole process of God fulfilling His promise to be their God, we see that it was always in response. It was always in response to the, people, to the people's choice. And always in response to the people choosing to have them, to have God be their God. In other words, God never forced them to choose. They could have very well said, no, we're not going to give these things. We don't want to construct a tabernacle. We want nothing to do with this. And see, God didn't force them. Rather, he, 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 what he did is, is, is up to this point, what he has done is he's made his self and his love for them known to him, to them. He's made his love for them known. And in doing so, he then invited them into a relationship with him. And has not God done the same thing for us? We had our own perspectives and our own perceptions and our own ideas of, of who God was and what God was like as we stood off from a distance and yet God made himself known to us year after year, month after month, day after day, revealing himself to be a good God, a loving God, a gracious God, a God who pursued after us, a God who wooed us into a relationship with him. Also a just God and a righteous God, for sure. But in that, God was making his love known to us, and then he invited us into a relationship with him. But in doing so, God made it known that he was also a jealous God. In this process of God making himself known to his people and inviting them into this relationship, saying, it's your choice, come, take what you want, be with me. God also made it known that he was a jealous God. And he made it known that if they were to receive him as their God, that he was not going to share their affections with any other quote-unquote gods. And what God did for and what God expected from the children of Israel is exactly what he's done for and what God expects from us who choose to enter into this relationship with him through our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. In other words... God will never force himself upon us. Like I said, he makes his love known to us and he invites us to receive him as our God. And he invites us in doing so to, to walk 
in accordance to his plan. He invites us to enter into his plans for our lives. But just like God was jealous for the children of Israel, guys, he's also jealous for those of us who call to choose him our Lord and Savior. In other words, he takes us at our word. And he holds us accountable. And because of this, God expects us to be faithful to him. He expects us to walk in accordance to his will and in accordance to his plans for our lives. And this is what we talked about last week. As we talked about the importance of walking in accordance to God's plans in light of verse 9, right? Where God instructed Moses saying, to be sure to make the tabernacle and all that were to be in it just as he had designed. In other words, God's saying, if you're going to enter in this with me, it's, it's, there's no compromises. And the need to construct the tabernacle and all of the items that were in it, just as God had designed, we know that, that there were certain reasons for this, but the primary reason is, is, is due to the fact that they, the tabernacle and all that were in them, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, they were these earthly copies it says, shadows of what was in heaven. And I love that when you begin to think about what that means, that shadow gives a, 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 a different uh, picture for us to, to view it as. You know, when you cast a shadow, it's, it's, it's representative of the real thing. A shadow of what was in heaven. And the very first thing, guys, that was to be made in, in, in accordance to what God said was the ark. The ark of the covenant. For this would be the place from where God would meet with and speak to his people. And with that, if you'll look at verse 10 with me, we'll read and see what it says. It says in verse 10 of chapter 25, book of Exodus. And then they, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width. Cubit and a half its height, and you shall overlay it with pure gold. And you, shall make an, and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them, them being the priests. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put it in the ark of the testimony, which I will give to you. Or excuse me. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. You shall make, verse 17, a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make a cherub at one end, and a other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of its one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above the covering of the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I give you, and therefore I will meet with you 
Here it is. And there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Now I don't know about you, but a picture says a thousand words. And so I have a picture for you, if you want to put it up, of what this uh, ark would look like. And um, I'm more of a graphic kind of guy, and that kind of helps me. And so as you read the description, as I was reading the description there in God's Word, it helps for you to see. Now, there are really two pieces of furniture, if you will, that are being described in these first verses. And I want to be clear that they're, they're two separate things, although they, they act together for one purpose. <clears throat> and then you have the ark, uh, which is literally a box, and then, and then on top... The, what might be called the lid, we have the mercy seat. Now, in total, there were seven pieces of furniture associated with the tabernacle. And we'll read about, we're not going to read about them all today in chapter 25. I'll, I'll reference some of them as we go on today and kind of draw some lines together and connect some dots. But um, in total, seven pieces of furniture associated with the tabernacle in regards to the ministry and of the priests and, 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 and God communing with and interacting with his people. And each one of these pieces had a specific function, a specific meaning, a specific purpose. And each one of these things, of course, pointed forward to our own relationship with Christ. And in these first verses, the ark, which would later be called the ark of the covenant or the ark of the testimony with its lid, which is called again the mercy seat, these things are mentioned first. And these two items were, were first because the ark and its solid gold lid was the single most important. Together, they were the single most important items or item um, um, uh, associated with the tabernacle considering, um, the, 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 that, um, considering that it gives us a picture of God's throne in heaven. The mercy seat, God's throne in heaven. Now, the ark was a wooden chest, we're told, Two and a half cubits long. Um, just so you guys get an idea of the, of the dimensions here, I'll do the conversions for you. That's what I want to do. It was about three, three feet nine inches long when you, when, you, when you work out the math, the calculations between the two and a half cubits. Three, and a half, uh, three, three feet nine inches long wasn't really big. Um, one and a half cubits wide, which is two, uh, two foot three inches wide, and another one and a half cubits um, or two, two feet, three inches tall. And uh, on top of the ark sat the golden mercy seat with its two angels, and you can see them there. And in chapter 26, of verse 33, we're told that the ark, in regards to its placement in the tabernacle, was to stand in the innermost part of the tabernacle, a place called the Holy of Holies, behind a, a, a veil of separation, called the... Which called the veil separation, and it was here in this place, in that spot where the tabernacle rested, is where God's Shekinah, um, as, as the the word there we'll read about later on, uh, His Shekinah presence. Matter of fact, it was a, it was a, a manifestation of God's presence, a, a manifestation of God's glory. It would rest and settle there in that place of the holy of the most holies, where the ark was, and because of this, the ark as an earthly throne 
of God, as the earthly throne of God, where God would come and manifest Himself, where God, as it says in verse 22, would come and speak with His people, with His priests, um, and interact with them and, and communicate to them. And, and all of these things, that the ark as this earthly throne of God, it really represented the power and authority of God. But not just the power and authority of God in general, the power and authority of God in the camp of Israel. In the camp of Israel, with His people. And this is why it's named first. And the fact that it's first illustrates a very significant, important thing. It it illustrates the importance of God's authority over our lives. It illustrates the importance of God's authority over our lives and the importance of putting God first in our lives. And being completely devoted to Him and considering how we've now become the tabernacle of God, we see how this applies. What should be first? God's authority, God's power, the presence of God in our life, us wholly devoted to Him. Remember in 2 Corinthians, we read this once earlier, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, it connects it to it. Paul connects it to, uh, uh, connects, for, connects us to this, the, 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 the tabernacle and the things that we're reading. And he says first in verse 16, he says, He says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. As God has said, I will live with them, and I will walk walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, as Paul goes on, he says, speaks these truths because there's a response if God's made His presence known to you, if He's come to dwell inside of you, to be with you, like He's doing and saying He's going to do here with the, with, the, with the construction of the ark and how God's going to do it and why He's going to do it, there needs to be a response to that revealed power and authority of God. And he says, therefore, to us in verse 17, Paul in 2 Corinthians, therefore, come out from them. Speaking of the pagan people of the world, he says, come out, or the unbelieving, unbelieving people of the world, or those who, who, who do not follow after God, who have not received Christ. He says, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Again, it reminds us of the jealousy of God, that God doesn't want to share our affections, our devotion, uh, 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 or the world's plans that he has for or his plans for us that with anyone else, with anything else. Now, when the ark was not resting in the tabernacle, it was to be carried by the priests. And um, later on, we see as the children of Israel uh, entered into the promised land, we see a, a, a different uh, connection to the, the ark being carried and, and, and even how the children of Israel begin to use the ark as um, something that God never intended it to be, as like a weapon for war, um, as if the ark itself had some kind of intrinsic power to it. And, um, um, but when it wasn't resting in the tabernacle, it was to be carried by the priests, and it was to go before the people in order to lead them when they left Mount Sinai, which we'll read about in a little while, and as they traveled through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, God always went before his people. And we saw that also with the, with the cloud that manifested as God manifested himself as the, as, uh, before his people when they first left 
and crossed over the, the Red Sea or crossed through the Red Sea and were traveling through the wilderness as God protected them with the cloud by day that shaded them and then the cloud which manifested itself as a pillar of fire at night and wherever that cloud or pillar went, then the people went. And now, in addition to the cloud, we'll still see that in the pillar of fire. We also see with the priesthood that God in the ark, the ark went before them. But the ark did not have any handles on it. That's what we read here. And it's because it was never to be carried by directly lifting the ark with one's hand. It was a holy thing that, that men or man was not to touch. Even the ordained men, these priests of God, they were not to touch it with their hand. It was a, it was a sacred thing. Instead, it was to be carried by inserting these gold overlaid wooden poles into the rings on the, each corner of the ark, as you can see there. And these poles, if you see there, if you look in verse 15, it says that they were to remain inserted in the rings and they were only and they were to be the only proper source of contact that the priests were ever to have with the, physically with with the ark in in regards to a direct connection so apart from from touching these poles it was forbidden it was forbidden to touch the ark of the covenant and the serious of this is made known in a passage of scripture to us in second samuel chapter 6 and in second samuel chapter 6 david has been anointed king and um, he's rejoicing and he's celebrating. And the Ark of the Covenant had been lost in one of these escapades where the nation of Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And, and you guys know the, the, the whole backdrop to that. Most of you do. And, and, um, and, and, and then it came back on, on a cart all by itself. And then it was stored in a certain place because there was not a, no tabernacle, no temple at that time. And so David, having, having become king, was wanting to reestablish um, the worship of God throughout the, throughout the nation. And, um, and as, as David put the ark on a cart, remember? And, and it was not supposed to be put on a cart. It was supposed to be carried by the priests. But anyway, David, David was excited. And he was worshiping. And, 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 and it says that the ark on the cart hit a rock. And um, a man by the name of Uzzah reached, reached out to try to keep the ark from falling off of the cart and he touched it he did not touch it at its poles he touched the actual ark and it says that god struck him dead for doing so now according to verse 16 god also told moses that there were to be specific things right that were to put to be put into the ark i love this because and he said i'm going to reveal this to you at a later time basically that's what god's saying he says go ahead and get it built and, and I'm going to reveal to you what I want put in it. And part of the reason why is because everything that God was going to have put in this hadn't, hadn't been manifested yet. Those things were not yet known or, or made at this place at this time. Um, but also uh, there was another significant reason for it. And, and, and when we read and study through Scripture, what we find out is, is that there were ultimately three very special items that were to be put inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. The stone tablets of the law, Aaron's rod that budded, and a pot of manna. And when you begin to look at these three things all together, it reveals something really significant. And it's interesting to note that each one of these three items is connected, they're linked, they're, they're brought together with, with a rebellion on the part of God's people. This is what they all have in common. The stone tablets, Aaron's rod that budded, and a pot of manna are all 
connected to a rebellion on the parts of God's people. Remember the stone tablets of the law, they're connected with the making of the golden calf. As the children of Israel were worshiping this, this golden calf that they, while Moses was on the mountain at this point, getting all these things. We'll read about that a little bit later on. But the same is true with Aaron's rod that budded is connected with the rebellion that was led by Korah. And then the manna, of course, we know that the manna first came as a result of Israel's complaining. God was going to provide for his people, but they were complaining. We have nothing to eat. And then we know that God responded by giving the, the people manna. And so there's this, this, this connection of rebellion. And the fact that these items were placed inside the ark and then covered with the golden mercy seat is really a testimony for us and a testimony to the children of Israel of God's mercy and of God's forgiveness. Especially in light of the fact that the mercy seat was rested on top of the ark and sealed in these past reminders of, of Israel's rebellion. It is the very same place, we'll read about this later on, it is the place where the blood, right? It's the place where the blood from the sacrificed lamb was sprinkled once a year on the Day of Atonement as a payment for the sins of the people. And we know that on the Day of Atonement all the people would come down to Jerusalem it would gather at the temple. There would be a sacrifice made by the high priest. And the high priest, once a year, only once a year, would go into the most holy place, the holy of the holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would take the blood of that sacrifice animal and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat as an offering, as a payment for the sins of the people. And when we consider that the Hebrew word for mercy seat is the word kaporeth, which, which means uh, the word, which also translates to the word propitiation, which means payment, we see a direct connection into our own lives with our own Savior, Jesus, and what He has done for us. Because in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we're told that Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the, the payment, or literally the same word here used to describe the mercy seat, that he's literally the mercy seat Jesus is. He's literally the mercy seat for us because of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf for our sins. And as a result, our sins have been paid for. And the reminder, guys, I love this because this connection to some of the truths that we know about our God, because it's a reminder of how our sins and how our past rebellions have been sealed away. And it's a reminder that God remembers them no more. They're covered. They're paid for. And that's why we go to passages of Scripture like God's Word that says, as far as from the east as the west, God remembers our sin no more. He casts them away into a sea of forgetfulness. Sealed. Why? Because of the blood. Because of the payment. Because of the propitiation. Because of the mercy seat. It's sealed. And it's a really encouraging thing when you think about it. In addition to the ark and the mercy seat, as we read on, we see that God also gave the construction for a third piece of furniture, something called the table of showbread. And in verse 23, if you look here, God says, He said to Moses, You shall also make a tabernacle or a, a table, excuse me, of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, and a cubit its width, and a, and, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame 
of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. Verse 26, and you shall make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings on the four corners that are on or that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of the acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. And you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them out of pure gold and you shall set them and you shall set, you shall set the showbread on the table before me always, perpetually. And again, I have another picture for you if you want to put that up. There's a, a, a picture of what that would look like. And, and then, of course, each one of those are, as they, as they extend up, are, are a place for where the showbread would, would then be um, put, the bread itself. And um, within the tabernacle, if you can picture it, there was, a, there was an outer wall, poles, and, and, and um, it, it, the structure that surrounded a, a court. And then inside the, the, the tabernacle was an inner court. And this inner court wasn't very big. We're not talking about a, a super huge structure here. Um, the inner court measured um, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. Okay? So the tabernacle had an outer court, and, and, and all around it there were these, these poles and um, a tent material that, 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 that um, formed the walls of the tabernacle. And then inside was the inner court, and it, and it measured 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. And this rectangular tent structure inside uh, the, 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 the walls of the tabernacle it is the place where it also housed the, the holy of the holies, the, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. So, so within this 30 feet long, uh, 15 feet wood, 15, 30, 13 feet long and 15 foot wide structure inside there, part of it was separated by the veil of separation uh, to where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. And as the priest would walk into the inner court, and this inner court um, uh, was called the holy place, as they walked into it, this table, the table of showbread, would be on his right-hand side. That's where it was placed, on the inside of this holy place. And then on his left side, and I'm going I'm to mention this now, we'll read about it later, but on his left side would be the golden lampstand that we'll read about in the remaining verses of this chapter. So these were the first two things that, that would be as far as the, the, the pieces of furniture inside the holy place uh, that, that, would, that the priest would see, one on the right and one on the left. And, but standing directly in front of him, right before the veil that separated the two, the two the, made two rooms in the, 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 the holy place there, uh, the most holy place and then the holy place, um, in front of that veil um, on the side where the priest could come and go, uh, was an altar, specifically a golden altar of incense. Um, and that is written about and, and, and described, and you can look ahead if you want, in, in chapter 30 of the book of Exodus. And I mention it now because it, it had a connection to the, the, the table here and the showbread that I'll talk about in a minute. But um, when we convert dimension, the, the dimensions that are given in um, verse 23, we see that this table for the showbread stood about 27 inches high. And, and it was three feet long and um, one and a half feet wide. And like the ark, this table was also made of acacia wood. And it was covered with gold, also like the ark. And it also had the, the rings on it 
um, uh, for the poles, and it also was to be carried by the priest in the same manner that the ark was on the shoulders of the, uh, of the priest as they, as they each on each corner of the pole would, would walk and carry it wherever the ark went. And um, or whenever, the, whenever the people were on the move, whenever God was moving the people. And on this table set these 12 special loaves of bread. And these, these loaves, which I want to kind of talk about for a little bit, is that they were baked and they were placed each week. And in Leviticus chapter 24, this is the detail that God puts forth in this in regards to instructions for the constructions and, and of, of all these things and the plans that he gave them. Just the, 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 that God left nothing up to the people to figure out on their own. No, 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 no room for assumption or, or guessing. God worked it all out. Um, to the finest detail. And when you get to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 40, 59, we see that God even gave a specific recipe. God's a baker. And, and that's why baking is awesome. <laughs> but he gave a specific recipe for this bread when he instructed the priests on what kind and how much flour that was to be used for each loaf, for each loaf of bread. Now, the bread on this table was replaced on the Sabbath, every Sabbath, once a week, like I said. And the old loaves, when they were removed, they were to be eaten by the priest in the holy place. Twelve loaves of bread. And, and I, I'm, I'm like this, I, so I went to Leviticus and I, I, I looked up the recipe <laughs> for the bread. And um, I did the conversion, and, and they were they're pretty decent-sized loaves of bread. They're about uh, five and a half cups of flour, and um, that's about what's needed to make an average-sized loaf of, of sandwich bed, something like that. But, but 12 loaves, all 12 loaves were to be eaten by the priest in the holy place, and then the new loaves were to be put immediately back in the place of the old ones. And the fact that the bread, which by the way, this is what we, we want to look at, the bread is, is, uh, is um, always a universal picture for um, uh, sustaining life, Right? And um, so the fact that the bread, which is necessary for survival, necessary for life, the fact that it was eaten in the holy place before the presence of God illustrates that fellowship, that it illustrates for us that fellowship with God is, is just as necessary for man's survival as is bread. And um, this, is, this, this is significant because there are a lot of things that the priests, as they offered up sacrifices, were allowed to partake of, that they could, some had to be burnt and, and couldn't be uh, consumed by the priest, but other portions of meat and other things, other grain offerings, um, the priest could enjoy them. They could actually take them home, but not, not the case with this. It was always in the presence of God. And... Um, it, again, it's a reminder that fellowship with God, our own fellowship with God, our own relationship with God is necessary for our survival. And, and for us, this is further illustrated by the words of Jesus, right? Jesus who said in John chapter 6, one of the great I am statements made by, by Jesus, you know, connecting himself to um, uh, being, being deity, God in flesh. He said in verse 47, I'm going to read all the way through 51. He said, Most assuredly or truly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then Jesus said it. He said, I am the bread of life. Uh, again, connecting 
um, the, 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 making a connection for us between uh, our need to, for life as it relates to our relationship with Christ. There's no life apart from Him. No sustenance found uh, apart from Him. And, and He said, I am the bread of life. And then He takes the, the crowd, the people He's speaking to, to something they can relate to. And He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And we know there's a backstory there with the people who He's speaking to. He says, your fathers ate manna in wilderness and they're dead. And this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And we know that Jesus would even go on at this point to, to make these radical statements about that if they were to follow after Him, if they were to be His disciples, if they were to have this relationship with Him, that then they must consume not only His flesh, but they needed to drink His blood. And then they were thinking carnally, they were thinking earthly, and they didn't realize the fact that Christ was pointing forward to the cross and how His body would be offered up as a sacrifice, how His body would be broken, his blood would be spilled, his life would be given. And through that, we have life. And as we take him in, then we have not only life, but life more abundantly, eternal life. Whenever these new loaves of bread that we're reading about here that were on the show bread, whenever these, these 12 loaves of bread were placed on, 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 on the table, guys, it was always in conjunction with an offering of incense. The altar of incense, the golden altar of incense that, that rested there um, before the veil of separation. There was an offering of incense that was burnt on this golden altar at the time that the bread was, was replaced and as the priest stood there eating that bread. And I point this out because the use of the incense in conjunction with the replacing of the loaves of bread, it reveals that the bread was actually a specific offering. An offering that was called the meal offering or the grain offering, which is described in Leviticus chapter 2. When we begin to talk about the sacrifices and the offerings that were made. And this meal offering was an offering of thanksgiving, always. So think about that. The bread and the, and the fact that it illustrates life and fellowship and, and life that comes through fellowship. As the offering was, was, was made, as the, as the bread was exchanged with the priest would eat. It was done so in conjunction with this offering where it was always considered the meal or grain offering. It was always an offering of thanksgiving given to God for His daily provision for their needs. And not only is God the, God the giver of life, God's the sustainer of life. He knows what we need. He provides. And it's important to point out that in verse 30, God calls these 12 loaves of bread show bread, or some, some translations that you have may, may even say presence bread as it relates to the, 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 where it was at and, and, and before the, the, the Ark of the Covenant that was behind the veil of separation. And when you translate this from the, the, the Hebrew word uh, leshem, it literally means this, bread of faces. Bread of faces. And, and this is because the 12 loaves themselves, the 12 loaves of bread, represented the 12 tribes of Israel. One loaf for each one of the tribes. And because of this, their presence in the holy place was a perpetual reminder. It was a, a perpetual reminder for the priests that they were serving the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. 
In other words, it was a reminder for them for the very reason for why they had been called into the priesthood, to serve God and to minister to his people, to the tribe. But these same loaves were also a testimony to the children of Israel, reminding them that they were constantly in the presence of God. So even when they were far away, spread throughout the land, the bread was there to remind them that they, as a tribe, as an individual, as a family, were in the presence of God. And that God, as a loving provider and as a, as a protector, He was always present with them. And that He saw all that they did and, know, and knew everything that they needed. And then in, in these 12 loaves of bread... Um, was only one of the ways that the tribe of Israel was represented in the tabernacle, in the holy place. The twelve loaves were just one of, of three ways, actually. And in Exodus chapter 28, we find out that, that they were also, the people, um, in a figurative way, were brought before God by the high priest when he entered into the holy place and even into the most holy place, as, as the, each one of the tribes of Israel, six on each side were on two jewels that sat on the high priest's shoulders that were or part of his vestments. But in addition to having these jewels on his shoulders, we know that the, the priest also had a breastplate, right? And in the breastplate was what was two stones called the Urim and the Thurim, or the Thummim. And, and um, in addition to that, there were all, uh, 12 other jewels of various colors, and each one of those jewels represented uh, or, or was, was um, a, a representation of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel again. In fact, when we read on uh, in Exodus chapter 28, we're told that just like the names of the tribes of Israel were engraved on the jewels that were on the shoulder, they were engraved on the jewels or the stones that made up the, the, that were connected to the, the breastplate of the high priest. And, and when we take all three of these images, the bread... Uh, the engraved jewels, uh, um, the loaves of bread, and the, and the, 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 the uh, engraved jewels. We see what we see is is we see that that um, first of all that God will provide for His people, right? The bread, but we also see that that God um, bears His people up on His shoulders. He bears us up, and also He carries us over His heart or in his heart. And so first there was the Ark of the Covenant, then there was the earthly throne, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the earthly throne of God, which represented God's power and God's authority. And um, then there was the mercy seat um, that's, that sealed the, the reminders of Israel's sin and rebellion. And then, the, the, then, the, then there was the table where the showbread was perpetually resting before the presence of God. And in the remaining verses of this chapter, which we're going to read, God continued to speak to Moses and he gave, them, gave him the, construction, the, the instructions for the construction of this fourth piece of furniture, the golden lampstand. And in verse 31, it says this, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornaments, knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. So it wasn't a poured, molded thing. It was a, a, a singular piece of metal that was, or a lump of metal, this in this case gold, that was hammered out um, to become one thing. And, and when, when you see it, it's amazing to think that this is, is um, 
it's, it's mind-blowing anyway when you think about what, what the Lord is speaking about here. It, it, it even seems impossible. And in many ways, uh, from, a earthly, um, from a human point of view, it is. And I'll talk about that. But it had six branches in verse 32. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like, an, uh, made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand on the verse 34 on the lampstand itself four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms each with its ornamental knob and flower and there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same a knob under the second two branches of the same and a knob under the third two branches of the same according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand and i'm sure you're having a hard time picturing this in your mind of course what we're talking about is what we refer to today as a jewish menorah and i'll have a picture in a minute but it says the knobs and their branches shall be of one piece and of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold you shall make seven lamps for it and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all of these utensils and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Again, following the instruction in verse 9, God making sure that at the, even at the end of these, 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 the, the instructions for these things to, to tell the people again to do it exactly as he had told them to. So if you want to put up the picture of the menorah, um, this, by the way, um, this piece here, this menorah, um, the, 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 which is a, 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 the golden lampstand or... Not the original one, obviously, but um, that one is made by the, the um, uh, Temple Institute in Israel, and it sits outside in a glass box in front of the Temple Institute in, in Jerusalem there in, in Israel. And, and of course, the, the Temple Institute is committed to preparing all of these items, all of the furniture, all of the priestly garments, all of the altars, um, um, to, to fill the, te the temple once it's been reconstructed. That's, that's what they're all about, the Temple Institute. And as far as they claim, they say they have everything needed um, and ready to go as soon as the construction of the temple, which the Bible says the temple will be rebuilt. Um, and when that happens, then, then the Temple Institute plans to be the ones to, to furnish it, if you will. And, and that one sits there waiting as a testimony of what of what they believe God's still yet to do. Now, this lampstand, which according to verse 39, that was made with 30 talents of pure gold, just so you know, that's the equivalent of 75 pounds of gold. Pounds. That gives you a little bit of idea about how big that is. That's, that's huge. Curtis, you've been there. Where are you at? It's big, right? How tall do you say that stands? About four feet tall. And um, even though we're not told how tall it was or how wide its branches is anywhere in the Bible as far as the branch span, we do know that when the Temple Institute tried to reproduce this golden lamp, 
that they could not do so as the Word of God described. They could not do so without, without installing metal rods up the middle and through the branches to support the gold from sagging underneath its own weight. And, and some people will say, well, that's just a testimony that, that, that the Bible's inaccurate and, and this could have never happened. And actually, it's not. It's, it's, it's a testimony to the fact that apart from the, the knowledge and the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, that, that we can't do the works that God calls us to do. And when we read on, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about how God gives us all a set of skills that we talked about that the men who were put to these tasks were skilled men, the Bible says, filled with the knowledge, the understanding, and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to be able to do these things. And I think that the, 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 the fact that the, the people at the Temple Institute could not reproduce this the way that the Bible speaks about it is, is a testimony to that fact. And I think it's also a testimony to the fact that um, Israel needs the Messiah. <laughs> they don't need another golden lampstand. They need Jesus, who is the light of the world. Amen? All right. Um, where are we at? Yeah. Um, even though this lamp was a beautiful work of art, and as you guys know, I'm going to get to go to Israel this year, and I'm going to go see it. I'm uh, super excited to see that and other things. I don't know if any of you others have been there. Um, um, but I'm looking forward to it. But even though it was a beautiful work of art, as it was decorated with almond flowers and almond buds and almond blossoms, it served a very practical purpose, right? It served a very practical purpose as the six branches and the center shaft was the only source of light available in the holy place. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up with this if the worship team wants to come back up and get ready. I'll give you a few minutes to do so, a couple minutes. But it, it was the only, there was no electricity, and as far as we can tell, this was it. This was the only, the only um, source of light in, in the entire holy place. And, and the seven lamps, which were fed by oil, um, and, and they were to be kept burning constantly since there was no way for any external light or natural light to enter in from the outside. And without, without a light from the lamp, think about it, the priests could not have done the various things that they were called to do. And... Um, I don't want to go too much into it, but for me, I, I kind of imagine what it would have been like without the golden lamp. <laughs> so I can imagine the priest having to go in there, you know, if we only had a lamp, trying to figure out how to put the bread on and how to, to, to do the, all the, with the, all the all, offer the incense and other things that took place in there, you know, it's, it's, it's just a testament to not only God's foresight, but the fact that um, the light is important. So when we consider the light from this lamp, which was used to illuminate the holy pray, the place um, so that the priests could see that what they were doing as they ministered and offered up their, their worship to God, what we should realize, guys, is this. So think about it. What took place inside the holy place with the priest was, was always, everything was an act of worship to God. And, and as we consider that if there was no lamp or no light and we apply it to our own lives, what we should realize is that God wants for us to not walk around in darkness in regards to our own relationship to Him, in regards to our own acts of service to Him, and certainly in regards to our worship of Him, right? God doesn't call us into these things and say, okay, go figure it out. Close your eyes. Be blind to it. 
Rather, God calls us, I think, to offer up intelligent worship, not ignorant worship, to serve Him intelligently, to be in a relationship with Him, not blindly, but like it says, to have a faith that is rooted in substance, in evidence, as a result of knowing that God is who He says He is and that God has made Himself known to us. We know it, and to do that, you know what we need? We need the light. In each one of these instances, we need the light. And that's why there are so such foolishness going on in Christianity today in regards to worship and service and relationship with people who call themselves Christians. And I believe that they are, but they're, they're, they're very ignorant and foolish in their worship because they're in their service and in their relationship with God because they're entering into the tabernacle, into the holy place of God without any light to guide them, to illuminate them, to direct them, to reveal, to instruct, to guide. And, and, and of course, for us, God's Word is this light. In Proverbs 6, verse 23, it says, For the commandment is the lamp, and the law a light, and reproofs, instru- uh, reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And then, of course, David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 105, he said, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Word of God is so important to give us light, to guide us. And without it, all these other things that God's called us to, as it's pictured and illustrated and example by the things that we're studying and reading about now and, and, and going forward in regards to the tabernacle, we have to understand that God has made a way for us to know. To know. And it's right here. So we have no reason to doubt. We have no reason to worry. We have no reason to not figure it out. And we have every reason to be able to be held accountable to this place, to this command that we see even here twice again. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. See to it that you live your lives in a service to God, as an act of worship to God, and in a relationship relationship to God in accordance to what God's Word says as a light that leads us and guides us and directs us. Because there's a lot of things out there in Christianity today that don't have anything to do with God's Word. And, and people, when we fall into that, we're like the blind priest wandering around or the priest walking into the tabernacle without the light lit, not knowing what we're doing or where we're going. But we have God's Word. In addition to God's Word, we have the Holy Spirit, right? To equip us, enable us, to reveal these truths to us. And so... Be in the Word. Study the Word. Don't make Sunday the only time when you read God's Word and study God's Word. Daily, every day, we're in need. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you for the study that we've had through, through this portion or part of the, 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 the instructions that you gave to Moses and how, how you desire to have a relationship with your people. And we see, God, how you desire and have made a way for us to have a relationship with you. Father, we love you. And we want to worship you in, in truth and in spirit and truth now, Father, with this last song as we really submit ourselves to you again. And God, as the light of your word illuminates into our hearts and into our minds, I pray, God, that you would transform us, that you would renew our mind so that, God, we would become that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is our reasonable service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.